Well, hello, and welcome into the second episode of The Cultural Coven. I'm your host, Nicola Roy, and I am delighted you're going to be joining me for some chats with some of Scotland's much-loved arts and cultural figures. And what a guest I have for you this week. None other than leading Scottish actress, comedian, stand-up singer and writer, the brilliant and hilarious Aline C. Smith. We actually recorded this episode in the week of International Women's Day, which felt very appropriate because Elaine is someone that so many of us actresses look up to. I know her from being around on the Scottish theatre scene. We have physically shared a stage once, and once when she was a projection of a genie in Aladdin at the Glasgow King's Theatre, while she was physically up the road in Aberdeen doing another panto there. So never let it be said there is anything Elaine C. Smith can't do. In this episode, we talk about everything. What it is to be a working class woman in this industry, comic timing, politics. Oh, and let me tell you, you are in for a treat on her creative challenge. It's probably advisable your bladder is empty for that one. Enjoy. The Cultural Coven is brought to you by Emotion Theatre with an association support from the Lyceum Theatre and the Stephen Dunn Theatre Fund. Welcome into the Cultural Coven. Elaine, it's such a joy to have you joining me here today. How are you? I'm fine. I'm getting there through it. It's it's almost a year to the day since Quintella closed at the Lyceum. We closed on the 14th of March. And so I haven't been in Edinburgh. And I normally I'm in Edinburgh every week, every couple of weeks. I haven't been in Edinburgh. I haven't been... I think I was inside the King's Theatre for an interview in October or something about whether Panto would go ahead. And that's the last time I've been in the theatre. And the last time I saw you was, yeah, February last year. And I think I was chatting to you in the toilets um, in the Lyceum Theatre and you were maybe the end of your second week of rehearsals for Pantilla. And I think I was stressing about getting flip-flops, how I would find some in Edinburgh in January because I was about to go to Australia with Tartuffe. And I kind of think, God, how... <laughs> how little did we know it was about to come um, and I'm sorry I didn't get to see Pantilla because it was then cancelled was it the first end of the first week we shut down no second week and it was just getting all right by then it was just getting the the cuts that had been needed to be done for you know two weeks three weeks were finally done Steve McNichol Denise Miner and I on a Sunday before we opened uh, emailing and phoning each other going right Carla and then the worst thing being that um, uh, David Gregg the wonderful David Gregg had come in he hadn't seen it at all and came into one of the dresses that we were doing and I knew you know old hand in the game you go an hour and a half for the first half that's technically abuse you don't you know you don't do that to an audience social workers should be called in at some point um, and the second half was like an hour and 20 minutes and uh, I was I was never flaming off either. I've ne- it was a massive, massive learn. And Murat, the director, Turkish director, who I adored and loved, the problem was he doesn't speak English. And it's a really, really wordy piece and translation and stuff like that. So that, as as actors, we just went, Steve and I were just literally learning lines constantly. And, and there was lots of movement and song going on. But, but we never ran it until... I think the first dress, we didn't even finish it. Oh, wow. So we had never run the whole show. And 
um, and then we went on the previews and, and David watched one and, and sort of gave some really, really pertinent notes. My husband's also a producer and he came in and watched. He was going, it's far too long, it's far too long. And I'm going, I know. Obviously, uh, Pintilla is a political comment on capitalism, or as much as I know it. And something that I so admire about you, Elaine, is that you are politically astute and not scared to voice your opinions. Was the politics a draw to you in doing that show? Oh, absolutely. Um, Brecht, uh, I suppose, it's not everybody's cup of tea. Um, we knew when we got to Glasgow that it would, uh, Brecht and Glasgow seemed to go quite well together because Glasgow's quite a political city. Um, yeah. I think the constraints of it being in the lovely Cross Arch Pretty Lyceum and the set we had as well, I think it would have worked much better in the tramway. Um, and also, you know, the, the teething problems, when you know with, with a new production, it is about the second week before it starts to really hit its stride, you know, about it. very often yeah. I, I, when I get invited to things, I never really go in first nights because I know unless you, there's really somebody you don't like in it and you can hope that it will be a disaster. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> uh, you go along the first night. Well, they are. <laughs> Just for madness. <laughs> never, never. But uh, the it generally you go along, particularly pals are in it. You wait for a couple of weeks to to let it because we know it needs that to bed in, um, and and so the the politics of it for me, uh, the gender politics, if you like, the fact that I was a woman playing Puntilla. You were the first woman to play Puntilla, weren't you? Um, I, I didn't realise I was the first woman in the world at the time. I only found that out on the sort of press night. So I'm glad that wasn't where I, I had assumed that somewhere in the Berlin Ensemble, women had been allowed to do it or something. But uh, when um, the Brecht, the woman from the Brecht estate was there and told me that, that sort of, I suppose maybe I'm just stupid and, and the, the fearlessness comes from a sense of injustice. My politics all come from that. That isn't right. Why Why? Yep. Why is that happening? Why is that not allowed? Um, and particularly if you're brought up in a working class background in the west of Scotland and, and going into something like theatre, then you can see how weighted it is towards a middle class audience. Um, and and uh, it's yep. written by generally middle class people for middle class people and middle class reviewers to review it and and uh, so I, I was attracted to uh, right at the start well it was it was seven eighty four you know I I started out in Martin Mines clubs and things like that as a singer and and so I, when I was at uh, drama school I did my thesis on seven eighty four theatre company. And when I was at the academy or the conservatoire, as it is now, and um, that was when, I, and I saw a John McGrath play with Dave Anderson in it and all of that at the Citizens when I was eighteen and a half, and it changed my life. I watched it and went, "Oh, oh, you can you can be on a stage and speak with a working class accent, or you can sing." Or you can talk about things that my mum and dad would talk about. You would you would have humour about things like that. Because I'd never we I don't mean we were, you know, Angela's ashes or anything, but we didn't really go to the, the theatre because it was expensive and, and we lived in Lanarkshire, it was a way to get there and stuff. And so 
when I saw that, it changed everything. And, and that's when I realized that's what I wanted. I wanted to be involved in theatre that said something. Now, uh, you could say, well, you've ended up doing her as a pantos. Yeah, I, and I can separate. I love doing stuff that just entertains people as well. But generally, even even in, poli in political terms, as far as pantos concerned, it was political with a small p that a woman would play dame that a woman would be able to and my worry is that, that women get written out you know the women that have gone before me are generally written out and the great stars are who were wonderful are ricky fulton and jack Mulroy and stanley Baxter and all that and you're like no there were women in those casts um and there were some very funny women too but they were never allowed to be the name in it that is so interesting, Elaine, because, I mean, it feels really appropriate to be chatting to you in the week of the day of um, International Women's Day, because genuinely, I don't think I would have been an actress if it wasn't for growing up and watching yourself, a Scottish working class woman who was leading in sitcoms and on stage, because like you say, let's not pretend this industry, particularly theatre, is still run um, or very much uh, suited, let's say, to the middle classes. It's uh, easier to access. Um, so did you always have a belief, like growing up as a girl in Lanarkshire, that you could do this? Or did you see barriers to going into the business? Never for a minute did I think I'd be able to do it. I had dreams of being Doris Day, you know, because that's who I watched on the telly on the Saturday musical. And uh, if I could be Calamity Jane to this day, I would be Calamity Jane. Um, but uh, it, it was watching women like her and, um, I mean, they still generally had to get their man in the end sort of a thing, you know, but they're just, see, and, and I was also brought up in an era where, where I was able to watch real heroines like Betty Davis and um, Joan Crawford and really Barbara Stanwyck, strong women, where, where the, they could open a movie, you know, they were. And in the 70s as well, you had writers like Neil Simon who were actually writing great parts for women, you know, from Barefoot in the Park to, you know, um, Marsha Mason and the Goodbye Girl and all of those. Jill Claybera was around. There were lots of really strong um, but generally those voices came from America or they came from London. They weren't, and working class voices. And interestingly, I know that uh, Scottish actors of my generation said that they looked to uh, American movies because they portrayed working class people. British movies or Ealing pictures, well, frankly, sort of, let's go into the drawing room, Margaret, um, that sort of a thing. And that's what we were brought up, you know, people disappeared through French windows. We didn't know what the bloody hell French windows were. So people like Jimmy Cagney and, and all of those working class heroes, if you like, that were out there and... um. Uh, so th th you didn't get that in, in British theatre generally. And then, of course, in the 60s, along came actors like Tom Courtney and Albert Finney and and uh, you had uh, A Taste of Honey and, and plays like that coming out that actually examined working-class life. Generally, it was from a, a middle class. The audience is going, oh, isn't it dreadful? These poor people are having to deal with this. So 
Um, I could understand why, you know, there were the busloads from Govan heading in to see those plays, but they were really, really valuable things to do at the time. So um, I, 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 it's interesting that um, the, the, um, I, I've been a, a sort of pen pal of Douglas Stewart, who wrote Shuggy Bain that has just won, and he lives in New York and it's just won the book and it's wonderful. And, and his heroine is a woman, his mother. An anti-heroine, if you like. And uh, he said he, he turned down by 32 publishers um, who all went, nah, nah, you know. And what they basically wanted her to have was a third act where she went to university and suddenly became Erin Brockovich, you know. They wanted that about a working-class oh, right. woman who had an alcohol problem. Um, and and he, he was going, but that's not my story. Interestingly that you say that, Nicola, and I don't feel in any way I was any, I, I, for me it was it was just getting work and it was it was never easy. It was a bit of a struggle for a lot of the time and it was quite lonely sure. as well. Um, but he said that one of his characters in the book's called Mary Doll and I was laughing and I said to you and I wrote to him and I said, you're young enough to have grown up and watched this. And he, he, he was so amazed that I'd got in touch and loved the book. And, and he said, you have to know that Mary Nesbitt was the first woman I'd ever seen on television that was like the woman I was brought up with. Really? That's incredible. It gave a validation to them. The Steamy did that as well for a, a whole other generation. So you were instrumental in getting the Steamy on, right? And I think for a demographic of, a certain demographic of women, that must have been the first time they saw themselves represented on stage. People like my granny, who, you know, like you say, the theatre of that time was not representing the working class voices that we know. But you, did you take that play to Wildcat? Is that how that, how the Steamy eventually ended up on stage? Tony Roper gave it, we were doing naked video at the time. And him and Gregor, they always call me Smudger. That's my um, that's my nickname. Hot hey, Smudger, you're you're into all the women's stuff and all that, you know. But, I mean, I don't mean that Tony was any great feminist. So I've written a play about women because I I was seen as always banging on about that, you know, in sketches that would come in. I gave a, a, I did the Scottish Women's Conference the other night, um. Uh, and and I'd given a quote to a newspaper that one of the things was I remember we did all sketches and I said why can't I be the doctor why have I got to be the nurse and Colin Gilbert was absolutely right because he said because people will think the gag will be about you being a a woman being a doctor they think they'll think that's what it is ah, okay. but it's actually not because there was so this is the early eighties. For your generation, I think it's hard to understand that actually making me the doctor in a sketch, a, a minute and a half sketch, would mean that the audience would go, oh, it's got to be about a woman doctor. So it was it was that ingrained in it. And so I would say, why can't you be this? And, and I was seen as a bit uh, trouble. She's a bit of a big mouth her. You know, she's always saying, why is that that sexist? But if that had come from a man, that would not have been seen as trouble. I think that's I think that's some, something we still battle against a bit in our industry, or all industries in the world, actually. As much as we want to think things have moved on, sometimes something that comes from a woman's mouth, if it came from a man's mouth, would be interpreted differently. I'm a big football fan. So I, I put this in my stand-up, actually, you know, that um, a, a man is not born with an innate... Uh, knowledge of the offside rule you know 
if a wee boy running up and doing a park at the age of eight can understand the offside joke, then we can as well. But I've stood in rooms where, uh, uh, where you know, guys who know nothing about football and, and say, well, I'm not really interested in it. And I would say something about the match and it would be a sort of, <laughs> and, uh, and then he would say something who had no interest in another and he would be listened to. And so when Tony brought the steamy to me, it was all, you know, nobody will put it on, borderline commissioned it. They, they say nothing happens in it. <laughs> um, go on and read it. And I thought it was, it was great mainly because it was about women. I found it funny. It had no songs in it at that point, but I thought with Wildcat, if, if they could put songs into it, it would let it be less, as we say in Glasgow, kale yard or upper close. Wasn't it all great when we all went down the steam No, it wasn't it. I like the washing machine. You know, let's not pretend it was something that it wasn't. It was hard work and a slog for women. But so the songs would allow you to reflect on it. You know, the song that um, the, the young girl sings, uh, you know, uh, Dreams Come True, about a house in Drum Chapel, which is fantastic because it's Dave Anderson and it's beautiful because it allows a political perspective into that because the audience sitting there go know that a house in Drum Chapel wasn't a dream come true. You, you thought it was going to be, and I took it to Wildcat. And again, they said, uh, years later, I said to the Daves, I said, why did you put it on? And they went, because you believed in it. And I thought, God, what if it had been terrible? Um, and and I was there at the auditions. I, I, I should play Magnet, um, the Tenement Goddess, uh, that Dorothy Paul eventually played so fabulously. Um, but, uh, but actually, Dolly was the engine of the piece, if you like, you know, um, and and drove the whole thing. And, and so... It, it, I was really, really glad in the end that I did it. and But it meant that I couldn't do the telly because I looked like a 29-year-old and I was pregnant at the time as well. But I would have missed out on Rabsy Nesbitt because we were doing the pilot, the Christmas episode, right. the first ever. It had been sketches before in Naked Video and I would have missed out on doing that. So maybe, maybe the gods were looking another way for me. And the only other play I've done mm-hmm. that has had the same reaction from a female audience is Calendar Girls, all over the UK, and, and women going, this is our story. Them seeing themselves reflected back. That is really interesting. Um, I was just thinking about Calendar Girls. Did you, you have to get your kit off then? Yes. First time. Nobody's ever asked again, thankfully. <laughs> Not me, <bitter>. Dad. <laughs> With, was it with them sort of, uh, you know, daffodils and things placed very carefully? I, I don't know if I'd be brave enough to do that. Actually, I have to give um, Hamish, the director, uh, the, a lot of credit for the way he did the scene. Apart from the fact I was in a, 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 a rehearsal room with Linda Bellingham, Sean Phillips, Patricia Hodge, uh, Gaynor Fee, Julia Hills, Bridget Forsyth, these actresses that I really admired, and I'm in a rehearsal room in London, and and he didn't do the that scene. We all did the the photo taking scene and all that where we had to get our kit off. Um, he did it for two weeks without, and then one day he said, "Tomorrow is kit off day, girls," and we were all like, "Oh, for God's sake!" Um. And actually, it was what for the women and the cast. It was 
the bonding of that, of us all being exposed, if you like, at the same time. But he did a wonderful thing of uh, you literally were naked for around 30 seconds because you were right. naked flash and then it was over. And we all helped each other sure. get back into our dressing gowns and, and do all that from one to the other. And you had, you know, um, you had buns, you had, you know, various things to disguise. Uh, certain things Shan had her knitting was up over her you know so you knew she was naked and we were sitting there I think when we were we'd been touring so long at Christmas I had a sort of thong on at the bottom and I, I put a lighty up Rudolph on it <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny but I was actually taught at drama school by Shan Phillips daughter Pat O'Toole and well as you can imagine coming from a state school in Edinburgh I did feel a bit like I'd stepped into a parallel universe. Um, but when I saw that casting of Calendar Girls with yourself and Shan, I thought, yes, what a powerhouse of women. And I know you've gone on to become firm friends. But how did that casting come about, Aline? When David Pugh came to me, who had seen me years and years before, I'd met him in London in Rabsea, and then he came to see my one-woman show with Willie Russell, of all people, um, because I was about to do Shirley Valentine. It was at the Fringe in Edinburgh and David Pugh wrote to me after it and said, I'd love to work with you one day, you know, and 18 years later he phoned me. <laughs> the Cultural Coven is delighted to have musical support from singer-songwriter, musician, member of the Red Hot Chili Pipers and very importantly, a fifer. Cameron Barnes. This song, Coming Home, and the rest of Cameron's music is available on all the main streaming platforms. So go on, download it and have a wee dance about your kitchen. Thanks, Cameron, for letting us use this tune. So, Elaine, you were chatting there about how at the end of Little Voice you'd had a wonderful time and you thought, okay, if this is it, if that's my career, then I'm, you know, I'm really happy. And something at the moment that I, I think a lot of actresses at some point probably find is I find I'm being a bit typecast. I've done a lot of comic stuff, which I love and I'm not knocking it, but obviously you feel that's not just what I can do. Have you um, come up against typecasting in your career? And how do you, how do you break that? How do you kick back against that and make people see you in a different light? It's really hard to do. I've come up against it. Um, actually, I did Calendar Girls because I was being typecast up here. Right. I knew that, particularly in Scotland, it's a small place. There's not a lot of parts. There's not a lot of stuff. And it was when I was doing little of what I, The reason I set up my own production company was to go, I am more than Mary Nesbitt. And it was, of course, you were seen yeah. as, who does she think she is setting up? Oh, who does she? But so, and you're like, wait a minute. So Kirsty Walk's allowed to set up her own production company because she's a serious journalist. Right. But I'm not because I play Mary Nesbitt. Um, and that was the whole reason for doing Shirley Valentine. No, no, I couldn't get, I couldn't get arrested in Scotland. I couldn't get a job in Perth. I couldn't get a job in Pitlochry because they all went, oh yes, she's that working class woman that does the. Before I became sort of famous, if you like, with Nesbit and comedy, I would get offered various things, but I was completely typecast by by a very. Um, a, a snobby, cringy attitude towards working class women, particularly. And you were seen as, oh, that's what she does. 
Um, and so uh, doing Little Voice, doing uh, The Woman Who Cooked Her Husband, doing two, those Jim Cartwright plays, weren't some vanity project that I was going to make millions out of. You know, we, we Shirley Valentine, we actually put our house up as collateral to guarantee it because we couldn't get any, no public money, no sponsorship, nothing. Fortunately, I realised I had an audience out there. And, you know, the audience go with me. Even if I'm doing something really serious or there's pals of mine who I never thought, or women I've known who are fans or whatever, come and see Brecht or they come and see Ida Tamsin at, at Norton Moore or they come and see things that are not necessarily within, you know, the my stand-up or whatever it would be you would expect the audience to be. But I had to break out myself. Part of my comedy, as you like, is about saying, don't typecast me, don't think I, I am more than this. Rabsy Nesbitt was wonderful and joyous, but it was like a gold-lined street jacket. My thing I would say to women, I've said my, my daughter's a, a young actress and out there, and I say, write it. Write what you want to do. Don't sit around waiting on some arse from the BBC, no offence, or STV or whatever, telling you you're talented. Because... Particularly when you're young, there's thousands of you. It pairs off. It gets a wee bit better as you get older. <laughs> you know, the field thins out a bit. Um, and, and also, I would go to the Lyceum for £300 a week and do much ado about nothing. I would go to the Tron and do yeah, the Good yeah. Sisters. I would go and 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 take jobs that weren't about. There were jobs I would do because they paid me well, and there were commercial jobs. But I would go off and do a play, Denise Miner's first play, like Ida Tamsin or Audra Moore. I want you to do that. Let's go. I, I don't care whether I earn any money of it. Now that's a luxury because most actresses don't have that. The bills to pay and kids and all of that. But, but for me, it was an American pal of mine said, you know, what you've got to do, Elaine, is you got to keep moving because if nothing else, you're less of a target. <laughs> and I thought, that's true. So keep them guessing just when they put you in that box. Yes. And, but also, yep. don't, don't decry yourself for what you're really good at, Nicola. You're really funny. There are, there are women out there who would love to have the talent that you have. And if what you're going to become is, is well known for being really good at something, do it. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. And, and I, I did all that stuff of wanting respect as an actress. And I wanted, I'll go and do Brecht. And, and then they'll say, they don't give a toss. You know, really, what, they, what audiences care about is, are you good at what you do? Are you entertaining them? Now... I stopped doing panto for about 10 years nearly um, because I'd done seven and I just thought, I'm bored. I'm not enjoying this as much as I was. And I kept thinking the audience were, were, were tired of what I was doing and I needed to reinvent myself and I needed to do all of that. And, and, and when I came back, I had a better perspective. I, I just became more, more thankful of as Ricky Fulton would say, the opportunities that I'd been given. And to stop trying, and as my husband would say to me, stop trying to please them because Elaine, you'll never please them. Those people that don't like you or or think you're a certain thing, they're never going to, you know, they're going to go. I would go to the Traverse. I went to the Traverse and did abandonment. And what you get is a surprisingly understated performance from Elaine. And you're like, what? 
you know. So if you if you play comedy, then you are not able to play subtle. And and anybody who does comedy really well knows very few straight actors can do comedy. Yeah, I agree. You can do it in a heartbeat. You can make people cry in the same way as you can make them laugh, but it doesn't work the other way around. And for me, making people cry is the easy part of acting. Making them laugh is a lot bloody harder. <laughs> I think that is such a brilliant point. Sometimes there's a snobbery around um, comic acting that in some way it's easier or it's not as valid. And I would, just as you said, I would argue the opposite. I think it's hard to teach comic timing. It's my big bugbear. I sit in audiences watching young actors go through, railroad through laughs. No ability, they could time an egg, never mind a laugh. Um, and I sit there going, and that's what I, I say to young actors, watch and learn. Stand at the side of the stage and watch people that can do it because I learned watching Dorothy Paul. I learned watching uh, Gregor Fisher. People like that on stage who have the confidence to wait. Confidence to stand there. And we're, we're trained in drama school that, that it's all about the words. It's all about the words. And the, no, it's not. You can have a really not very good gag or piece of writing. If you time it well, you'll get a huge laugh. If you time it really well, you'll get two huge laughs. So the, that that thing yep. is is watching other people learning. But it comes from stuff, stuff like the Oscars as well. Robin Williams gets nominated for an Oscar when he plays a straight part. Yet he's been entertaining millions and millions of people for years and years. And years. There's, no, there's no Oscar for best comedy performance. So there is a great disparity. And yet the movies that people most remember in their lives are, you know, Some Like It Hot or whatever movies that go go down there. I don't think Doris Day ever really got an Oscar for those wonderful performances or, or great comedians. Madeleine Kahn in Young Frankenstein, is, is she's one of my comedic heroes. She's just, her timing is immaculate. Don't beat yourself up for what you're really good at, Nicola. And I'm saying that to my younger self as well, who was so desperate to prove myself as as an actor. But actually, the golden ticket in in uh, in Scotland, in particular, is comedy. That's the golden ticket. Ah, you're right. Great advice for us all. What was that thing about the bill? The story I was going to tell about the bill when I walked in, and I walked in with. with I had a black bob and I had a leather jacket on, a short skirt, and you could see them go, oh, because who they were wanting was Mary Nesbitt to walk in the door. People didn't think I was acting. You know, nobody says to Robert De Niro, oh, not the American accent again, Robert. You know, could you maybe do another accent and then you'll be a great actor? But when we act in a Scottish accent, we're not really acting. You know, we have to be those people. I've had a few scenarios a bit like that at additions. And it's only... Something like Two Doors Down coming along, another huge gift in my life, which I never expected. Suddenly people are going, well, she's a good actor. It's bizarre. You know, a BAFTA comes along at this point in my career, for a, but for a comedy performance. And the irony being, I didn't even go to the BAFTAs because it was Best Actress. And I went, a comedy person's never going to win that. I've had a thing about the BAFTAs because I'd never been even made the long list in the BAFTA Scotland for 30 years. So I was bitter and twisted about it. So I was sitting in my house watching X Factor in my pyjamas when when Grado and John Young phoned going, you've won. 
but it was almost like people suddenly woke up. I mean, that blows my mind that, um, yeah, that you, obviously, if I understand it, that you didn't go because you're right. Often when you see a comic role up against a serious role for an award, we go, well, the comic role's not going to get it. See, it's Justine, you are a hoot. And it, is it really freeing to be able to swear that amount on TV? Fabulous. Because as Mary Nesbitt at different times, I, I never said the F word once in, in 10 series. I was never no. allowed to say, you could say bastard, but it, it's it's really freeing. And also to have a commissioning editor in Shane Allen in London who actually came back and said, could Christine please swear more? What is liberating about her is she doesn't have a man to tell her to be quiet. Yes. And she's free. And, and also... She acts a bit like a man. One of my favourite things I did, and it was during a scene where I'm left in the living room with Alex and Johnny and, and Grado and we're sitting round, and I open my, I just did a physical thing of opening my legs the way a man would sit, you know? And then as Eric's going, do you want a drink, Christine? And I go, have you got a Foster's, Eric? And I did it like a guy. Have you got a Foster's, Eric? You know, and... And that, I mean, we all burst out laughing. And that's the same because she, she, why shouldn't she man spread or woman spread? We're all terrified of her too and her tongue and that she will, she will say things. And, but also I have a real thing about swearing. Loads of, no offence to my uh, more middle class friends or actor pals, they can't swear right. Yes. And the, the swearing jumps out at you. So suddenly when they're going, um, they're saying, Donald fucking duck, they have to fucking duck, they have to do this. Suddenly there's all that going in there. And But Christine would go, who do you think it's Donald fucking duck? It's just let it be in the thing. And 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 that's what resonates. Throw it away. Throw away. It's in the middle of something. And I have gone out and going, you don't need that fuck there. <laughs> that you're better with it in the next thing. You're wasting the fuck that's coming up by putting it there, if there's too many as well. So, but it's, it, it, is, it is wonderful and it, it is great because it makes everyone else laugh as well. It is fabulous to get to swear like that. And I think, and what I'm amazed at is that, that I, when people ask me to do messages to people and stuff like that on Kami or whatever, it's, it, they want me to swear. They want me to be like Christine and swearing and all that. So it, it's uh, – and, and people I wouldn't expect uh, – maybe 20 years ago they would have been outraged at the swearing, but now they're not at all. But if it's done right and if it's done appropriately and it, it's believable. She says what everyone's thinking. Okay, Elaine, so it's time for a wee creative challenge. We're going to call it Rewrite the Song. So the idea is I give you the first couple of lines of a song and I'm going to ask you to come back at me with another line or another couple of lines. You're rewriting the end of it. Are you ready, Elaine? I could do the whole song. I'm hoping we've got a full dance going on in the background, jazz hands and everything. A full full movement and everything. (laughs) Costume and all. Okay, right. Number one. So the song is I Know Him So Well by Barbara Dixon and Elaine Page. And the lines go... Wasn't it good? Oh, so good. Wasn't he fine? So fine. Um, and this was this is from Chess, this one, isn't it? Well, as a 19-year-old, I queued up 
just out of drama school at Evita. And uh, this song, I, although it wasn't in that show, it always reminds me of the two of them with that show. And believe it or not, when I first went to Aberdeen to do panto, <laughs> a guy came up to me in the street going, ah, it's yourself. I was rushing out for a sandwich or something. It's yourself. You're up for the pantomime, I see. And I went, yeah, that's right. And he went, ah, well, I hope you enjoy it. It's Elaine C. Page, isn't it? I said, yeah, that's who I am. <laughs> yeah, so here we go. Okay. Wasn't it good? So good. Wasn't he fine? So fine. Wasn't it tragic? Because he was near mine. Wasn't it shite? He went halfway, Jeanette. She's no my pal, no, you can bet. But in the end, he was the worth me wasting my time. I've got maturity as well as his social security. I'm happy myself. Ah, would you think? I just wrote that. That was bloody brilliant. So many women identifying in Scotland with this. Oh my goodness, that was cracking. The next one, what is it? Too hot, is it? My favourite, Bruno. I love Bruno Mars. Yes, yes. Uh, so Uptown, Uptown Funk by Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars. So the lyrics are, I'm too hot, hot damn, call the police and the fireman. Right. Believe it or not, I did do Bruno Mars in Panto as well. Right, um, so too hot, hot damn. Call the police and the fireman, too hot. You're right, I'm 56 and I need a fan. It's the menopause and I'm in the throes. Geezer sweat to your fire hose. <laughs> this is brilliant. Oh. Best I could come up with. That is gold, Elaine. He's a sweatier fire hose. We're talking about you were a teacher, Elaine, and actually you were a teacher at my school, um, Firhill High School yeah. in Edinburgh, before I went there. But I remember going to the school and being told about you by other teachers and how you were a bit of a trendsetter and you'd walk about in your knee-high boots. I think we had a, a drunken conversation yeah. about this in the bar at Oranmore at one point. Um, but, uh, yeah... I met my husband there. He was a modern studies teacher there as well. Um, and well, I met him in a union meeting, actually, and he eventually got a job in the school. But, uh, yeah, I suppose I was young, and it was the late 70s, early 80s. So I I, I did have a tendency to wear my flying suits. And, you know, and it was quite a conservative thing, but, you know, teachers, the head teacher still wore a gown and, and suits. Grant, Mr. Grant Wood and heads of department still wore gowns and stuff. And there was me, you know, in a, in a flying suit with all the zips, a black flying suit I had that I loved with thigh-length boots and, uh, you know, my uh, double woman sign earrings and my, my makeup and my big back, you know. But they, it was... There were two things that happened to me in Edinburgh. I would get all the time, but if I basically if I spoke or said anything, they would there'd be a sort of laugh, and then she's from the west oh. was a sort of excuse yeah. for two people. Yeah, she's from the west, um, and uh, she can get away with things. And also that I was a drama teacher. Yeah. So drama teachers were seen as you know you were a bit kooky and a bit. Mm. out there and, and basically you like the kids <laughs> which was quite an unusual thing for certain departments I just adored it 
and I left when I was 23 and a half or something um, and got the job with 784 because by then I realised I didn't know enough. I, I, you know, to pass on, particularly in drama and, and experience to children, I felt like I needed more life experience and yeah. to go out and, and do and see more. Um, and I'd actually gone for promotion and I didn't get it, thankfully, or I would still be teaching. And it was not getting the promotion. I thought, maybe this isn't the right road. You know, they say that sometimes you come at a crisis and actually it's an opportunity. Yeah. And it was an argument with my now husband at the top of Leith Walk after, you know, a few drinks and being at... um, We'd been at a soul club or something like that, and and he said, "Oh, it was a reggae club actually." And he said, um, "I don't want to know you in ten years' time when you're saying I could have been because I kept singing and I was acting with Edinburgh University Theatre Company and and you know enjoying that." So I kept my hand in, saying, "Oh, I could have done," and I was so raging at that that I actually went off and and I wrote to Seven Eighty Four and Wildcat was who I really wanted to be with. Um, uh, and then Wildcat got in t- or yeah, Wildcat got in touch with me, Dave McLennan, who ended up one of my lifelong pals, oh. spoke at my wedding and, you know, um, all of that. Um, and uh, dear, dear pal. In fact, Juliet Caddo and him met at our wedding. Oh, really? That was the night they got after at each other. Oh. That showbiz gossip. Scotland's still a black. Um, and uh, Dave Anderson played the piano for me coming down the aisle. I came down the aisle to uh, Ain't Nobody's Business If I Do, uh, a good old blues song. And uh, Liz Lockhead wrote a poem for us and, and did it on the day as well. I mean, it was a, it was a real... It was a real time, but but many of the pals that I'd made as, as teachers and, and students were at the wedding as well. And if you can keep 2C on a Thursday quiet, for half an hour, then you can keep any audience quiet for a bit. It's not a time in my life I regret at all. I think it's one of the best things I ever did, but I just knew I had to get out and do other stuff. Sure. I mean, I loved Firhill. I thought it was a, it's a great school, but I understand what you mean. Um, and obviously you've got to do, if acting's your passion and doing it yourself, you've got to do it. Obviously you haven't left Scotland. I, I believe you've always lived in Scotland. Is that right? And I suppose... There is still this view in our business sometimes that to be successful, maybe you need to go to London or to LA. You have obviously proven that wrong, but what kept you in Scotland? Um, I I suppose I I always had a thing that, interestingly, Calendar Girls was about, I was in my late 40s, uh, just coming up to 50 then when I did it. And that was about me going, I wonder if, if I, you know, I still had that thing of, oh, well, you haven't been a big success in London. You've not, you know, I, I, I had been offered Mama Morton in Chicago and, and I had, I, I, I think Hannah was only two and didn't want to do that. And, you know, there were, there were opportunities that come along, but nothing that made me go, I want to do that. And so Calendar Girls was a bit of proving to myself that, that, that I could be funny elsewhere. And then I realised, this, you know, the audiences all responded to me. They all like, you know, it, it got a fantastic response what I was doing, and and she became one of the favourite characters. And the inventiveness and creativeness or creativity I was allowed to put in it was great to be the original in something. Then you get to create it. Um, but I think it is 
you know, it's it's not helped by comments. I had one very well-known writer saying, well, unless you've, uh, you know, been successful in London and, or acted in London, you can't really call yourself an actor. Nobody says that to Swedish people. Yeah. Unless you've been a success in Norway, then you can actually be a good actor. And I, and I got a bit defiant eventually of going, the programmes that I do, Rhapsody Nesbitt, Naked Video and Two Doors Down are all network programmes. They're not BBC. BBC yeah. Scotland wouldn't have had the money to make them. I was reaching millions and millions of people in those shows across the UK. Um, why would I, why would did I have to apologise and go? Oh, I, and I did have that feeling, that genetic thing of no good enoughness. Mm. I'm not good enough to do this. I'm not as good as these other really important actors. And then you realise that programmes like. Naked video, we're getting bigger audiences than Alas Smith and Jones, Who Dares Wins, things, but they were made in London. So the the um, PR machine around them was really easy to for them to access as well, you know, that they were um, able to uh, just churn out where we were in Scotland. I mean, I don't think I'd been in Broadcasting House in London for 20 years. Right. I'd never been invited to any of their big soirees because they're not going to pay you to go. Mm. So so you're not visible. So I get why a lot of actors think if I'm in London, I, I'll be more visible. And I'll, but actually, I, I was in a big hit. That was the West End. It was a huge hit, Calendar Girls. I don't think I get any work out of it. The, you know, I, I, it wasn't that people were going along going, oh, you have to come and do this. And there was a, also a really defiant part of me. I realised that of going, what is wrong with living and working in your own country exactly. and entertaining your own people? Well, why is that bad? Why is that not good enough? And and that's no disrespect to anybody that's gone early or gone to do other things, but the level of respect the business here gives to someone who's had two lines in a big movie mm. will, will end up winning a BAFTA. You know, when you're like, wait, wait a minute, wait. And most Scots don't even know who they are. But it's about the business and the industry. Yep. So uh, I would say to young actors and, and people, don't be ashamed of it. Be be proud of the fact that nobody's saying to people in Dublin, you have to go to London in order to become a decent actor. Or nobody's saying in Paris, you watch something like Call My Agent. What I love about that is, is there's a whole industry there. There's a whole industry in um, in Paris and and throughout France about film and television that that you don't need to know about living in London and and we should be a bit better about it I think I can't talk to you and not talk about Panto my first professional job was playing So Shy alongside the late great Gerard Kelly who was playing Wishy Washy so I was the gobby comic part and you um, were on stage with me in a form as um, a projection as the of the genie I think you were up in Aberdeen doing panto in body um but it didn't pass me by that really you changed the way or the, the path for women going into Scottish panto because I know previously those types of roles the comic uh, female characters were often actually played by men and it was yourself and Barbara who came in and played the ugly sisters at the Kings in Glasgow and things started to shift so were you brought in in a way to save um save the Glasgow Kings panto or get the ratings up 
I think it was more to reinvent. I, I, I went back and did my BA at Queen Margaret and I wrote my thesis uh, called Nothing Like a Dame. And it was about pantomime and uh, about women going in. And what I discovered during it is over the last 300 years, the, the amazing ability of pantomime to reinvent itself because yep. it is something that has to chime with the audience. And so you have Christmas stories for a certain type of audience, uh, you know, that want a nice, gentle, lovely, magical experience. And you had you have a variety, as you know, coming from Commedia dell'arte in in Italy, um, and and what what the great comics in the seventeen hundreds or whatever did were the great comics in in uh, Britain were were clowns, right? And many of them were clowns and and uh, did it all in mime because you had to pay the, for the spoken word. You had so dumb shows became really, really popular. Here's my favorite interesting uh, point about Panto is that Buttons is the only character that is directly related back to uh, Commedia dell'arte because you always had wow. the jester who was the narrator. And that's why Buttons' costume is the way that it is because it was the Harlequin. The Harlequin came out and he never gets the girl. And he gen generally is the person who, who... Now, you can also understand that the comics of the day were men. So great co clowns coming out, and if they were able, eventually when you didn't have to pay so much for the spoken word, these great clowns would put on women's dresses and prance about as a woman, and that would be hilarious, right? So eventually, in Victorian times and into... Um, all of all of those times. One of the earliest pantomimes on record, by the way, is one that was on in Edinburgh, and it was called Harlequin in Leith. And it was uh, that's the other thing that you notice that that Jerry Kelly used to say pantomime is a celebration of local culture. No one in Edinburgh gives a toss what's happening in Aberdeen or Glasgow at Panto time. Make it for the audience that's sitting there. Uh, what they realised pre-Babs and I coming in and doing that big Cinderella was was that uh, the pantomime was dying a wee bit, variety was dying uh, ever so slightly. And I want to pay homage to the great women who had been there, Una McLean and uh, Dorothy Paul, yeah. um, uh, who had actually been trying really hard, very funny women, and they would get to play the nurse or they would get to play Mother Goose or something like that, but not generally at the Kings. The Kings were still seen as a bit of a bastion of, and the years before it had been Cannon and Ball with Jerry Kelly and um, Christopher Beggins and Jimmy Logan and people like that. But what they realised was that middle-class audiences weren't going in the same way. Be, they were going to the Citizens right, or the okay. Tron. And they weren't, so that big audience went, variety wasn't as fashionable. So they realised that they had to reinvent a wee bit. And they were, the, the stuff of, uh, you know, even when I first went to see uh, a panel on, I, I couldn't work out what the lesbian subplot was between Principal Boy and the Principal because they were both women. And, uh, or, or why the uglies had to be uh, men or why the dame had, I, I, I just, all of that was, I don't think kids really cared about it or understood or those traditions. And, of course, the tradition of 
of women playing principal boy was a Victorian tradition because it just allowed men to see women's legs. So panto has reinvented itself over the years. So again, um, they asked Babs and I to come in and play the uglies, which were the two women. And at that point, we were both in Nesbitt and um, all of the, you know, Mary and Ella. We didn't do it as them. We did it as actors. Um, and it worked. Now, ironically, the two, the two parts I don't think work as well with women playing it are the uglies. Because if they're still written in such a misogynistic way, it's all about the way women look. But I've noticed that of late when they've got women to do it, it's about how ugly their souls are. How, not how that they're actually, you know, beautiful. It's not about them looking ugly. It's about ugly as people. And I think then you can, then it can work. I also think that there are some men who play uglies terribly. There are some women who play terribly. There's some men who play dame. And I go, I don't know what that is. It's about the type of performer you are. If you are a woman that's prepared to come out and make a complete arse of yourself and take the audience with you and not be vain and not be worried about how you look. When I looked at myself uh, dressed as Lara Croft, it wasn't a pretty sight. But the question I ask is, is it funny? So it, that Cinderella changed everything in, in lots, or not changed, but just moved it on a wee bit. Yeah, there's still a way to go. I mean, things seem to be moving on but there's still a huge disparity there's got to be a balance as well hasn't there I think it's about it has to remain funny but have a heart so that the kids can tap into the princess and the prince type role but there's got to be the jokes and the laughs for the um the adults um because I I did a panto straight after I did the Glasgow Kings it was first family I was doing it with and they sent me to Romley to do another Aladdin so it was myself and Francis Mail and McCann. We both went down from the Kings, but the rest of it was a different cast. I noticed such a difference between how we do panto in Scotland and how we do it in England. Like it was so blue. Melinda Messenger was in it and God bless her, she's such a lovely woman, but every second joke was about her boobs. And I just thought we just would not get away. It's, it's, it feels like we come from very different traditions. I won't I won't have it. I just I'm like, no, if you have to do that, then you're not funny. Yeah, uh, there are cleverer guys than that. There are better guys than that, and and uh, it's no disparaging of English panto. It is the way they do it. They like that saucy seaside postcard sort of a thing. Those guys, and and it's more of a variety show. People come out and do their act, and there's more things like that. For me, a narrative really matters, and it's a fight. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm the person going, but why are you saying that? But it really matters to me that you tell a story. Absolutely. It's the only time of year that many kids go to theatre. So it really matters that we um, we serve them as well. I have got some quick fire questions for you, Elaine. Um, so uh, you should be aware that I will obviously judge you on your answers. These are fundamentals in which I judge a person. Here goes. Classics or modern? Classics. TV or theatre? TV. Oscar Wilde? Or Arthur Miller? Oh, oh that's too hard. Um, uh, both. Chippy sauce or no chippy sauce? If I'm in Edinburgh, it's got to be chippy Way. sauce. The Bard or Burns? Burns. 
Mary doll or Christine? <gasps> oh, oh, that's too hard. Gun to your head moment. Christine. The slosh or Macarena? The slosh. Catherine in Taming of the Shrew or Lady M in the Scottish play? Catherine. Stage left or stage right? Stage right. City or countryside? Both for different reasons. I can't choose. <laughs> a buffet or a la carte? A la carte. Ooh. Independence or no independence? Independence. Fancy Nancy or dress down? Fancy Nancy. Bollinger or beer? Bollinger. Yay. And that concludes the quick fire questions. Well, thanks for chatting to me, Aline. It's been an absolute hoot and I hope we can catch up soon. Who knows? Maybe even in one of those things we used to hang about in called theatres. Well, what a hoot. And what an incredible woman, right? I hope you enjoyed your time in the company of the brilliant Aline C. Smith. Why not join me next week when I'll be welcoming Scotland's best-selling crime novelist, creator of the Rebus series, playwright and fifer Ian Rankin into the cultural coven for some fascinating chat. Until then... Music